0: Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Now, in Revelation, these letters that he wrote express to us what really matters to Jesus. And what really matters to Jesus shouldn't matter to us, don't you think? And i got to tell you, I'm so excited about this series because I've been to these places. Turkey had no restrictions, and so we start with Ephesus, And I stood in those streets. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hi, and welcome to a new series of messages on Today with Jeff Vines. Today, Pastor Jeff starts a message called My First Love. We'll see where he goes with that. It's part of a series about checking our hearts. Where is your heart really at? Here's Pastor Jeff, starting in Revelation chapter 2. It's great to see you Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation chapter 2. We're about to start this journey that uh, I think it's going to be one of those things that You'll remember for a very long time. How many of you have ever had to go in for like a stress test because you've had heart issues? If you're my age or a little older, a lot of people have had those. You know, they put you on the treadmill and you run and you run, and they hook up to all these wires. And of course, you're nervous already, so of course your blood pressure's up. You're afraid they're going to find that you're not going to live. So you know they're trying to find out if your heart is healthy. Then they put you on this. They give you an echocardiogram, right, which is kind of like an ultrasound and they're looking, and you're on the table with your shirt off, and this nurse is running this thing all over you, and you're talking to her and again. You're nervous. Is it there? Is the heart, is it still there? You know, of course it's there. I remember the nurse saying to me, Pastor Jeff, your heart's really good. Usually with age, and that bothered me right there, with age, your heart usually hardens a bit, but your heart is in really good shape. And I, you know, and I said, well, you know, I'm a Christian. My heart's soft. And do any of you get that? So... Then after all of it, you know, these heart tests went on for like six months. So they spent $50,000 on me telling me my heart's okay. That's when I almost had a heart attack, right? (laughs) It's an amazing thing. In the series that we're uh, launching into, and I really want to encourage you to make all four weeks if you can, we're looking at... uh, the, the book of Revelation, with a special emphasis, we're looking at the seven churches, the letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches. Now, why would we do that? Well, we're told in Scripture that what really matters most is who you really are down deep inside. And the fact of the matter is nobody knows you except Jesus, and you maybe, maybe your wife. But there's even part of you that you don't allow her to see. Same thing is true with the wife and the husband. And the reason that's important is because judgment day is coming. There is a day when we're all going to stand before God and give an account for the way we've lived our lives. And the reason to know what your heart is really like is because Jesus is described in a very unique way in the first part of Revelation. Let me read two verses, uh, or, or actually three, 12, 13, and 14. John says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. We'll get to that. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was like, or white like wool as white as snow and his eyes were like blazing fire. That's a description of the Old Testament describing the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is God. So John says, I'm describing Jesus, but he looks just like God. Now why would that happen? Because God is who? He's Emmanuel, God with us, but that's Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. The descriptive part of that passage is when we're told that Jesus has eyes of blazing fire. That doesn't mean much to you and I, but it means a lot in New Testament context. It means that he is able to peer through everything and see into the central you. He cuts through everything. He knows who you are. Now, the thing I like most about Jesus, or one of the things I like, I shouldn't say most, salvation is the best thing, but did you ever have a teacher in high school or college university that gave you the answers to the test about two weeks out? Those are unique, but they'll actually give you the answers because they'll tell you, this is what I want you to know. I'm not trying to trick you. You memorize this, and when I give you the test, you already have the answers, so then write them down. Jesus does a similar thing. He says, this is the test right here. And to give us the test, he takes us these seven letters that he writes to seven churches that you can still find the cities. They've changed a little bit in what is modern day Turkey. So Paul stationed himself down here at Antioch. That's where they were first called Christians. And he would use this as his base to go up into these areas and to preach the good news of the gospel. And when it got a little bit too uh, dangerous, he would go da- back down to Antioch, take a little bit of rest and relaxation, let things cool down and then go back up. Now, in Revelation, Jesus, and we'll get to the, the end times and all that at some point in the series, but for right now, these letters that he wrote express to us what really matters to Jesus. And what really matters to Jesus shouldn't matter to us, don't you think? Because it's on that basis that you and I will stand before God and give an account for the way that we've lived. So it doesn't really matter what you think, again. There's objective truth. It matters what matters to Jesus. So the whole series is about a heart test. And I got to tell you, I'm so excited about this series because I've been to these places in the last two years. I've been to these. That was the good thing about COVID. Turkey had no restrictions. I got to go. Didn't matter. You just go right in. They never did the masks. They never did the vaccinations. They said, just come on in. We're going to try to beat this thing herd immunity wise. And they did. And so I went. Now, that wasn't a political statement. (laughs) I'm just simply saying this is what Turkey did. And because Turkey did that, I got to go in. And so the last two years, I've stood in these cities. And so we start with Ephesus. And we're looking for that first heart test, that heart check, the checkup. Robin and Sian and I went to Ephesus. And then a year later, this past May, 25 one-and-allers returned with me. And I stood in those streets. And as I stood in the streets, all my education and learning of early church history came flooding back. And it's like the Bible came alive. And I remember that Ephesus was home to a growing, prevailing church in the late first century. But it was also the home to many false gods, the gods of the Romans, which is the reason John ended up in exile in Patmos in the first place. He was exiled because he was aggressive. He expressed constant, open, aggressive displeasure concerning The false gods of the Roman Empire. If you remember John, he was a disciple of love. He loved people and he loved them so much that he wanted them to know there is a God who's not made with hands, who makes everything else. And that God is life and spirit, a God of love. In fact, while we were there, guess what? I got to go to Patmos, to the Greek island. I got to go to the place where John wrote the book of Revelation they, They dropped us off, and we walked up this huge hill up to this monastery, and then they showed us to a cave. And supposedly, now nobody really knows for sure, do we? I mean, I have no idea, but I know I was in the general vicinity where John was there writing the book of Revelation. And I just remember thinking, wow, I'm here. This is not some myth or legend. These things happen. And I stood in the streets near the ruins of the temple of Artemis back in Ephesus, And I remember that thousands of people used to travel to Ephesus year after year. Thousands of people. It's kind of like, well, for instance, today, if you go to Ephesus, you can walk through the streets, you can walk into the ruins, and you can buy souvenirs and drinks and some pretty good coffee. (laughs) And you can buy T-shirts for the grandkids. You can buy cheap jewelry. I did. I needed a new wedding ring because I keep losing mine. Hey, $2. That's what I'm talking about right there because I lost the original one and Robin won't buy me another one. So I have to keep buying these cheap ones. So I got a cheap wedding ring and you can buy these little statues of Artemis uh, to whom the largest temple in the known world was built. But if I were to take you back 2000 years, people came from two Ephesus from all over the globe, but they came for a different reason. They came because it was a world-class city. They came to Ephesus the same way you and I would love or used to love going to Chicago or New York or London or Miami. You went for the food, the fun, and all the culture. And you had in Ephesus banking, you had commerce, you had temple festivals, you had celebrations, you also had brothels and pubs and everything you can imagine. And yes, just like our major cities, Ephesus was filled with immorality of epic proportions. But as I got there, we were all taking photos, and I I ran ahead because I like to be by myself. It really ticks my wife off. But I said, I got to be by, I got to think, I got to process. I got to take this back to the people of one and all. I got to think. And so I went away by myself. I continued walking. And the more I turned my head and and looked around, I knew all the learning came back. I saw the ruins of one of the best libraries in the world at that time, education and scholarship, were a premium It was the, if Ephesus was the intellectual, intellectual hub, all the greatest thinkers and the philosophers, if you were a teacher, you wanted to teach in Ephesus, that would be your claim to fame. And then as I turned away from the library and headed South, I started catching a glimpse of these huge archways. And I wondered if anybody in the group read Latin or Greek because I could read it. And it's a, it's quite a famous inscription, Caesar Augustus, who is God. And I walked under the archway because I knew what was on the other side On the other side, through the archway, you see the agora, the marketplace, and this is where all significant activity in Ephesus occurs. Ephesus at that time was perhaps the most effective trade center in all the known world. And in this agora, this large square that had uh, huge columns, three entrances, uh, north, east, and west, you would go through those gates and you would enter into an amazing portico And in that portico, there were hundreds and hundreds of shops. This was the first mega mall. That's what the Agora was. You could get anything you ever wanted. The shops were filled. It was very affluent. Plus the fact that Ephesus was a port city, which means the goods from all over the world. In fact, all the the roads, the trade roads in the Greco-Roman world filtered into the city of Ephesus. And when the ships came in, they were from all over the world, bringing goods from all over the world. So as you would make your way up and down Ephesus, the streets of Ephesus, into the Agora, it was absolutely magnificent. You would have smelled all the spices from faraway lands, seen all the beautiful colors and the textiles woven and imported for sale. You'd witnessed all the socializing among the people from all classes and races in Ephesus. People would gather here for discourse, debate, and often just wine and conversation. It was the hangout hub. Now, some of you don't like history, but you have to know it. Otherwise, the text makes no sense because in this city of Ephesus, the church was thriving. They were quite impressive. We're going to learn that they have put away the Gnostics and the Nicolaitans. The Gnostics and the Nicolaitans were two groups that said it didn't matter what you did in the flesh. It only mattered what you did or thought in the spirit. So whatever you did, whatever sin you committed in the flesh didn't really matter. It was inconsequential, which was a very convenient doctrine for religious people. And this would open the door to all kinds of drunkenness, orgies, debaucheries. Yet the church in Ephesus, in the middle of all this, rejected all these things and remained faithful to God's word. Folks, given the challenges that it faced and how new the church was, this is remarkable. I started thinking, there are times when I was studying this in seminary, I thought, why were they, I mean, Ephesus is going to be different than all the other churches. They still had a problem, but we'll get to that in a minute. I thought, why did Ephesus, why were they so successful so early I wonder if it's because Paul spent, and they had some pretty good teachers. Paul spent two and a half years there. In fact, he preached every day from 11 to four. Every day, seven days a week from 11 to four. And I complained about three times on a weekend. (laughs) This guy was a tough dude. They also had Timothy, Paul's disciple, right? So Timothy spent a long time there ministering. They also had John who ends up on the Isle of Patmos. So they had the cream of the crop where teachers are concerned. But then I started thinking, so did Corinth. And Corinth was a mess, They had good teachers, and they entered into all kinds of immorality. Ephesus was unique. They not only heard, but they listened, and they obeyed. Now, stay with me for a moment. I looked around the city, and I had hoped to find the place where they had burned incense, and I did. Still there, an altar. Because you were not allowed in the agora. So that means you couldn't buy or sell or network or even engage in community unless you went into the Agora, but you couldn't get into the Agora unless you burned incense to the gods of the Romans. You took the incense, you burned it, you held it up high as a sign of loyalty to the deity of the emperor. Early Christians were gonna struggle with that, weren't they, because they were uncompromisingly monotheistic. Now, what's amazing is other people in these churches, here's what they did. Oh man, this is so important. They said this, well... I kind of got to do this because otherwise I can't buy, sell, or have community. So, you know what? I'll do it on the outside, but I won't mean it on the inside. That was the approach. I'll go through the motions, but I won't mean it in my heart. I'll do the activity externally, but internally I'll not worship the emperor. But not the Ephesus Christians. They said, no, we won't do that. No matter what it costs us, we will not compromise. Now, I started thinking again, I wonder if it had anything to do with the Ephesians had read the letter to the Thessalonians because the letter to the Thessalonians was written about 10 years earlier than the letter to the Ephesians. And I wonder somehow if in circulating this document that they had read something that Paul said, and he said this in 1 Thessalonians 5.22, abstain from every form. The Greek word means appearance. Now I gave you one week off of Greek words, but you're going to get hit with it again next week. Let me just give you a warning: one week off. Appearance of evil, appearance that seems radical, and that would require real commitment, wouldn't it? To to, to not do, to to do something or to resist doing something. And it really wasn't wrong. It just gave the appearance of wrongdoing. The, the church at Ephesus refused to burn of the incense. They refused to give the appearance of evil in a time when it would have been very convenient and extremely profitable to do so. And they paid a high price. Folks, can you see that? I don't want to rush by this. Imagine being locked out of doing business, of buying and selling goods in the marketplace. How are you going to survive? There's no Amazon to drop it off at your front door. There's no Grubhub. <laughs> You're using that, you're crazy anyway. <laughs> it made life extremely difficult, which is why Christians in the other parts of Asia, Asia Minor, rationalized and compromised, but not the Ephesians. But you know what? Burning the incense was the least of their problems, believe it or not. There were 14 temples in Ephesus, 14, all dedicated to pagan gods. And none rivaled Artemis, the ancient god of life and fertility, Her reign began around 1000 BC and Ephesus was the headquarters of her worship. And the temple became one of the seven wonders of the world. It was 150 yards long. That's what? A football field and a half. 110 yards wide, a little over a football field, wrapped in 127 massive marble pillars. It was majestic. And the worship of Artemis, it was an everyday thing. It wasn't just weekend It invaded every aspect of life. There was constant worship ceremonies. There were constant worship ceremonies, daily prayers, rituals. And the sexual and the religious were so intertwined, it was hard to determine the difference. And the reason is because there was no difference. There were hundreds of temple prostitutes, male and female. And most of the rituals or most of the festivals concerning anything ended in orgies, rapid sexual immorality. One man wrote, you think Vegas is bad? Vegas is like a convent compared to Ephesus. We today think the world is so bad, never been this bad. No, it's been worse. In fact, every May, every May, to celebrate Artemis' birthday, the sacred way, which separated the Agora and the library and the uh, the other social events, thousands of people would gather in that sacred way, and they would lift high a picture of Artemis. Now, get this, they would sing songs of worship, Dance and cheer all night long, and then they would get this huge procession that would go down to the water, because Ephesus was a port city, and they'd all have this little statue of Artemis, and they would baptize Artemis to reclaim her virginity. And then late into the night, you'd have all these drunken orgies in honor of Artemis, and some of the young men would castrate themselves and offer their dismembered parts as a sacrifice to Artemis. That's all I have to say about that. (laughs) All of the town worshiped at the temple except one group of people, the Christians, and that's how they were identifiable. That's how you knew who they were. They didn't show up at the temple. They were that committed. But the early church's challenges did not stop there because not only did they have this burning of incense to the Roman gods and the temple to Artemis, they also, they were what we call a Neochorus, a Nerochorus is a city that plays host to the temple of an emperor so that you could worship. Not every city was granted this, but Ephesus was granted two temples. When I was there, I actually went and searched because I knew they had built a temple to uh, Augustus, but I, I gotta be honest, I couldn't find the ruins. I don't know why, but I know it was there. But I did find the ruins in the center of the city at the highest place you can find the ruins of the temple of Domitian. And it was built in the center so that everyone could see Domitian was the emperor from uh, 81 to 96 AD. And when he came into power, the first thing he said, I want a temple in Ephesus because it's the best of the best. And he even made, the, they even made a statue of Domitian. Talk about a narcissist where all the other gods were holding and lifting him up and he was at the top. And when you came into the harbor... The first thing you saw was the huge statue of Domitian, a lot like when you come into New York Harbor, you see the Statue of Liberty. He hated the Christians and he purposefully tried to make them mad. He would use names to identify himself like Master, Lord, God, Son of Man, oh yeah, Savior. He detested the Christians and he wanted to do whatever he could to make them angry so they would riot and then he could imprison them or execute them. But they never did. They did everything they could to live a quiet and peaceable life. And their way of protesting was just keep doing the right thing. Drove Domitian batty. Many wanted to kill those Christians, but he didn't give up antagonizing them. He made sure there were times when all Roman citizens were required to publicly affirm with their own voice that Caesar is Lord. And the Ephesians wouldn't do it. And many of them died. All you had to do was say, Caesar's Lord. You didn't have to mean it. You could say it on the outside, but not mean it on the inside and live. No, they still would not compromise. They didn't burn incense. They did not bow down to statues. They refused to dishonor the name of the Lord. Can you understand now why Jesus begins his letter like this in verse one of chapter two of Revelation? I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, I'm assuming he's talking about the Gnostics and the Nicolaitans, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And then verse six, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans and also hate. It's amazing. Unlike any of the other letters to the churches, there's no hint of compromise in the church at Ephesus. Wow. Think about it. They even detested the Nicolaitans whose philosophy would have been very convenient. They would have said, go ahead, Christians, take the incense, bow to Caesar, dance to Artemis, join the sexual orgies, it's just body, there's no real damage done. The Ephesian church simply did not fall for this. And you know what happened even after Paul left? And I I was reminded of this when we went into the stadium, huge stadium in Ephesus. I mean, basically it's still there. And I walked into the stadium and everybody went down in front, but I went up to the top so I could take a photo. Because I remembered that after Paul left, all the silversmiths, who really chased Paul out of town, but they gathered all the protesters into the stadium, and they started chanting. They did this for over two hours. Artemis, the God of the Ephesians. Artemis, the God of the Ephesians. They went, and they got everybody in this kind of you know uh, out-of-body experience, and they dragged all the Christians into the stadium, and they were going to kill them. And then the governor shows up and says, wait a minute. We have courts for things like this. And if it hadn't been for that, the Christians would have died. Now I got to stop here and I want you to ask yourself the same questions. You know, sometimes when I study a text, oh man, there's so much. Can you tell, am I talking too fast? There's just too much. There's too much. So I'm going to take it easy this week and blast you next week. <laughs> As I was preparing this, I heard God say to me, and it's not an audible voice, you know, a lightning didn't now strike me in the head or anything like that, but I could just sense God saying, hey, before you stand up on your high perch and preach, why don't you ask yourself some questions first? Man, that was convicting. So I did. These questions are for me. And I want you to ask, would God ask you these questions? You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. The Ephesians were doing well in all these areas, but Jesus says, I hold this one thing against you. And I think this is is so important because Jesus says, I hold this one thing against you. You have forsaken your first love. What is first love? Because it's so serious that Jesus says, if you don't repent and change, I'm gonna come and remove my lampstand. So I have to ask two questions. What is first love and what is the lampstand? You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines" wherever you get your podcasts. You make me want to dance and sing With every single breath i breathe, I will break this offering You are my wonder You make the wonder Today Today Today